So since this is a decapitated head, then, would you then assume that it's stolen? Um, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, you are listening to the podcast Inside the Box, Things and People in a Globalized World, produced by the Museum of World Culture and the Center for Critical Heritage Studies at the University of Gothenburg, in collaboration with Folkuniversitetet. What starts with a robbed or plundered object will eventually find its way to someone's collection, perhaps a private one or a public one, in for instance, a museum. If we focus on the private and also possibly criminal collector, who is that? What is the motivation for collecting? What are the excuses for committing a crime? These are a couple of the questions that we will ask today in Inside the Box, in which we explore the theme of global illicit trade in cultural objects. With us today, we have Donna Yates, Associate Professor at Maastricht University, who often describes herself as an archaeologist at a criminology department, and Maria Dahlström, a curator at the National Museums of World Culture who work with endangered cultural heritage with a background in archaeology. Welcome, Donna. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And welcome, Maria. Hi, it's great to be here. Thank you. And I'm Helen Arvidsson, also curator here at the museum and today's host. Let us open the box and see what's inside. I see a sculpture of a head, a female, I believe, but I'm not entirely sure. It has some sort of an ornament on the head and I think there is some sort of figure on it, but it's a little hard to tell. It's made of stone and it seems real heavy. But also, the head seems to have been cut off from a body, since it has quite rough edges. Maria, please tell us, what are we looking at? Well, um, it is a very androgynous face, I give you that, and we actually know who it depicts. It's a, a bodhisattva uh, called Guanyin, and that can be both male and female uh, and um, the little figure on top of his head, I call it a him, is a, a small Buddha called Amitabha. And we know that this sculpture is from China. Uh, we don't know exactly where in China, perhaps central China. We know it's old, uh, probably 8th century AD, uh, which is uh, the Tang dynasty in Sweden. That is sort of the equivalent to Viking Age, uh, to give you an uh, estimation. And, uh, well... If you like, I can tell you how it ended up in our museum. Please do, please do. Well, uh, we can trace this uh, sculpture back through a series of previous owners and events. Uh, that is what it means to do provenance research, to find out an object's history from its finding place to where it is today. And now it's a part of our collections here at the National Museums of World Culture. Uh, in fact, it's at the Museum of Far Eastern Antiquities in Stockholm, the Ustasiatiska Museet. But it actually came there from another museum in Stockholm, the National Museum, in the 1950s, uh, where it was part of their Oriental collection. 
And they, in their turn, they got this from the Museum Friends Association in the 1920s, who had bought this at an auction from a, a Swedish painter who was rather famous uh, in the early 1900s called Klaus Fureus. Now, Klaus, he was also an art collector. And I do believe that there are more museums in Sweden who have objects from his private collection. So where did uh, Klaus get this object from? Uh, that I don't know, neither do my colleagues. Um, we would like to find out someday. Um, in fact, we're starting a new provenance research project here at our museums now to go through the histories of our collections and where they came from and how they came to us. But uh, as you said, this one has been decapitated quite brutally, separated from its body and its place of origin. And uh, I don't know, Donna, where, what do you think about where the body is? Is that, can yeah. that be found at another museum? Well, potentially. Um, the interesting thing I think about these Buddha heads is um, that in, in European and American, Australian, in, in museums outside of the, the Far East, we're very used to seeing these heads entirely alone. We're used to seeing heads and no bodies. So much so that you can go to stores and find uh, fake versions of these decapitated Buddha heads or big plastic ones in restaurants and hair salons. We're used to this shape and it almost feels like that's, that's how they were intended to be. They were intended to be heads alone, but that's not the case. All, all of them have a body um, often back in their country of origin. And the reason that um, you usually see them as heads is because the whole statues are very heavy. So if, if you are an antiquities thief who is trying to steal a sculpture to smuggle to a market somewhere that's going to be smuggled onward all the way to, say, Sweden, you're not wanting to carry this whole heavy, gigantic statue that's nearly impossible but a head you can break that off at the neck because the neck is a weak point you can put it in a bag you can smuggle it all the way to Europe so in a way a market is grown around uh the practicalities of of theft so <laughs> yeah yeah so often um as as people who've traveled uh in China in in South Asia like Cambodia at, at temple sites, you see rows and rows and rows of Buddha statues with no heads. And the heads are off somewhere in the market, in a museum, um, far away from uh, its partners. Though you often do, you, in, in some museums, you see the, the decapitated statues too, as somebody decided to move the statue later on, later on. So since this is a decapitated head then, would you then assume that it's stolen? Um. Yes. <laughs> it's always, and, and, and that's the exciting thing about uh, initiatives such as, as uh, the one that Maria was talking about, learning the, the provenance of these pieces. You can kind of assume that there was a, quite a, a violent act in the statue's past, but you can't know. You, you just don't quite know. And that's where research is very important and tracing the histories back to the point where the statue was decapitated. Um, I, I would assume, yes, that, that this, this was a bit of a violent act and violent acts tend to, to be associated with crime, but the research needs to be done. And, and Maria, how would, we, how would we go about to figure this out? 
Well, uh, I, I like the term that you used there, Donna, the violent crime, because it might not have been an illegal act at the time of the decapitation, because as far as I know, uh, modern China, the, their first law protection, protecting uh, cultural heritage uh, came into being in 1909, and this might have left China before that. Mm-hmm. But um, in fact, uh, uh, that law was a sort of a direct result because of the looting and plundering going on in China at, at that time already. Um, but uh, for us, if we have to do the provenance on this object, well, first of all, we have to look at the archives from Klaus Foreas and see if we can find anything left from those sales and from his catalogs. If he was a uh, a serious art collector, then maybe he, he did some notes, notifications about where the object came from and then trace it back through maybe other antique dealers. And eventually maybe someone has a note that says it came from this specific temple, perhaps. So it requires a bit of detective work, right? Definitely. Provenance research equals detective work. <laughs> there we go. Definitely. <laughs> so in this office, uh, episode, we are trying to understand a little bit of the mind or the mindset of the criminal collector, the people who collect these kind of objects, the ones that we assume are stolen. But to do so, we still need to just get a little bit of background on the theme of global illicit trade in, the, in cultural objects. You touched on it a little bit. It's, it's definitely not something new, as you already said, Maria, right? It's been going on for a long time. Yes, certainly. Um, and, uh, well, it became a big thing in Europe uh, like two, three hundred years ago. You're having a collection, often in the style of curiosity cabinets, was a real status symbol. And uh, these collections, the early ones, they would mix everything from flora and fauna and human history. It's just a big mishmash. But then when the Western Europeans, when they started traveling and going to North Africa, Egypt, the Middle East, when they discovered Pompeii, uh, there was this market for historical artifacts. Uh, and um, actually, the Swedish king, Gustav III, he went to Italy in the 1780s on his own uh, trip, Grand Tour, as it was called. And he visited uh, Naples, which is the big town near uh, Pompeii and uh, went to an antiques dealer there and uh, bought uh, quite a large collection of uh, uh, vases, Greek-Roman vases. And uh, that collection is in Sweden now, uh, some at our museum. And actually, we had a research project a couple of years ago with some Italian archaeologists who came here who had discovered uh, the ledgers and books from this antiques dealer. And there were very detailed descriptions of these vases, how they looked. And so they were trying to trace all these vases through European museums to sort of build that collection uh, back together again. So, yes, uh, but as I said, this, this trade hasn't always been illegal because laws are uh, quite a new thing, actually. Um, but as you said before, Maria, um, the, laws, the laws were created in response to this interest. Um, they 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 weren't they weren't something that existed before. They they were they were local reactions to um, the loss of all of these cultural objects. Can one also say that has this 
I'm, I'm, I'm thinking now, today, has this in any way escalated with the internet and, and the possibilities that opened up with online trading, etc.? Yeah. I think um, escalation might be the wrong word. I think the, the market has changed. So while the market certainly has its foundations in the 17, 18, early 1900s, and a lot of aspects of the, the, the art market and the market for antiquities um, come from this time period, such as secrecy about who's buying and selling. It's a very, very murky, not transparent market. Um, the Internet has kind of opened the market up to everybody. Um, when when once it was a market that you had to um, mostly elite people engaged in because you had to be the kind of person who went to auction houses and had enough money to buy these things, the Internet allows for um, small time buyers, small time dealers um, and small transactions. It allows everyone to who would who's willing to pay for it to potentially own a piece of the past sometimes for a lot of money but also sometimes for very little money so we're thinking of just a few euros to to own a, a small artifact the issue of course though is that um a small artifact also comes from a hole in the ground at an at an archaeological site so it's it it is its removal is just as illegal and often just as destructive as a, a million euro artifact. A hole is a hole. It's just as destructive. A hole is a hole. That's wonderful. Let's let's unpack that a little bit. What kind of objects are we talking about or what kind of endangered heritage? Because I know it's not just objects. Maria, do you want to tell us a little bit of the different different types? Well, uh, I would say that all kinds of heritage is under threat uh, for one reason or another, but uh, we usually talk about three categories of heritage, if you like. There's movable, uh, like this sculpture, immovable heritage, and also intangible, what we call immaterial heritage. And what do you mean by that? What's intangible, immaterial? Intangible is that which we can't really grasp or touch. It's uh, it's stories, songs, handicraft, um, old skills. Um, I know just the other week, uh, Finland uh, declared that their tradition of sauna bathing is an intangible heritage, which is worthy of protecting. Actually, UNESCO have a list, so you can add uh, your own intangible heritage to that list. Um, Perhaps one way to think about um, these three different types of heritage, um, keeping the Buddha head in mind, um, the movable cultural heritage is the Buddha head and the Buddha statue, because Obviously, you can pick it up and move it. Um, the, the immovable cultural heritage is the temple that it was once in. Um, and then the intangible cultural heritage, um, the immaterial cultural heritage, are all of the cultures and traditions around the statue, the sacredness of the statue, the way that um, people interact with it, and the, the culture that are in these actions. So can one say if if one steals the head, so to say, those other aspects are affected as well? Certainly, certainly, certainly absolutely. If you think about it, uh, a sacred statue inside a museum, you can't you can't do the same sacred things. You can't perform the same uh, 
cultural acts and traditions and and uh, sacred things that you do with the statue anymore. It's in a museum. All right. I know there's something called red list, and I want to go into a little bit. What are those, and how do the, those act as a protection? Um, Maria, I know you you want to start here. Well, yeah. Yes, because I, I worked with these red lists. I translated some of them into Swedish, actually. But um, uh, they are published by ICOM. And ICOM, that is the International Council of Museums, which is the main organization for museum professionals around the world. And uh, one thing that they are most not famous for is that they are put together a code of ethics, which uh, dictates how museums and staff should act. And there is also a code of ethics for antique dealers. And I know that at the moment there are discussions whether this code of ethics should be updated. But uh, I think the majority of those involved think that uh, it's more important to to work on raising awareness among the public and professionals rather than spend time and money on, on updating this code. Uh, but they also have these red lists, which is a, a list of endangered cultural heritage, and they highlight which type of objects are in most demand and in most at risk of being part of the illicit trade. And uh, they are used by customs and law enforcement, but also auction houses and museums, and anyone can use them, actually. Um, so if you see something for sale, or if you think about buying an old antique, you can have a look at these lists. And is it on them? Well, that means that you should be extra careful about buying it. Do some provenance research, detect work on your own. What can you learn about the history of owners, the original finding place, export licenses, receipts? Because uh, this object might very well be something that has been smuggled at one point or another. But let's say I'm, I'm on vacation and I'm finding something beautiful to buy as a souvenir. Is this something I'm expected to do? Uh, would I then Google if it's on a rest list, uh, red list, or, or, or how should I, as a, as a private, you know, as just a person on vacation, go ahead and do this? I, I think the, 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 the phrase in English is buyer beware. <laughs> it, is, it is your job as the buyer to be aware of these issues. Um, because it is your problem as the buyer and then potentially the person who is carrying this object back into Sweden um, to, to, to know what the issues are. Um, if you are stopped by a customs agent holding it, you're the one in trouble, not the person selling it to you. So it is, it is something you, you have to keep in mind. Um, so yes, uh, one thing to do is, is Google the red list. They are available on ICOM's website. Um, the other thing to do is to spend a little bit of time looking at what the rules and laws actually are in the country you're in. Again, Google's your friend here. Um, I'm not saying read the entire uh, laws, but often ministries of culture have websites that let you know what you can and can take out of the country. Um, but it's worth spending time on it because if if you get caught with something that is illegal, it's it ends up being no fault but your own, and that's how law enforcement treats it, treats it. Yeah, I would also add uh, if it looks old, don't buy it. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, but and also it might be part of the illicit trade, but 
might also add that we have this, um, uh, you know, sea tests where, where there might be regulations about what you can export and import when it comes to animal and uh, fauna and flora and things like that, like ivory, for example. So mm-hmm. you should always be careful when you buy anything abroad, really, and, and really think about what it is you're buying. And right now, there's there's um, new regulation coming into force throughout Europe um, related to bringing ancient cultural objects into Europe. Um, that's fast changing. Things are going to get more strict and better better safe than sorry. Hmm. So there are the red list and there are also the, the new stricter laws that you talk about, Donna. Are there, are there other ways of protecting this endangered heritage? Sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I, I agree with Maria. It's it's perhaps best not to buy in in countries of origin, especially if if you are not absolutely clear on what the rules are. Um, but one one way to to protect these items is is to kind of invest locally, um, enjoy your tourism. Um, visit archaeological sites, pay your entry fee, um, go to museums in, in these countries, pay your entry fee, all of the money feeds back into local preservation, but maybe leave it all there. I think that's a very good <laughs> suggestion. Uh, also, tourism is very important for protecting cultural heritage, even though too much tourism can also be a threat, can wear a site down. But um, it's uh, very important to involve local communities in protecting their own heritage. Um, and uh, often, well, th- we think of this as a problem in, in poorer countries and in, in places where there's maybe maybe a lot of poverty. Uh, if you get a chance to rob an old grave and sell the objects to feed your family, then you're going to do that. Um, so it's it's a, a bigger problem than just uh, the illegal trade. It's a bit of social economic aspect. But it, but it also happens close to home, right? It also happens here in Sweden. Most definitely, yes. And um, well, we have had thefts from museums and from libraries, for example. Um, churches. There is a reason. Churches. So we had a spectacular heist two years ago from Strängnäs when there was this old regalia that was stolen and later found again. In a bin, right? Yes, exactly. <laughs> it's very strange, all of it. I think you've given us a, a, a good background to move on to the criminal collector. Who does this? <laughs> Who is collecting? Um, Donna, uh, who is it and, and why this urge to collect stolen things? Well, that's that's a good question. Um, I slightly want to move away from the idea of a criminal collector um, because uh, I think labeling somebody a criminal makes it often difficult to talk about these issues. But the urge to collect really is a, a very interesting topic. There's been a lot of academic research on this because um, uh, this there there seems to really be this human desire to assemble things together. We see it in children. When I was a child, I collected bottle caps and unicorns and all sorts of matching things together. And I've been hearing during the corona crisis, people are suddenly getting obsessed with collecting little figurines and things that they can buy online just as something to do. But there seems to be this 
sort of pan-human attraction to uh, assembling pretty or interesting things together. Um, I've, I've done a lot of interviewing of collectors of various things, and there are some patterns. Uh, a lot of collectors indicate that they became interested in their, their target of collecting as a child, and the, this, this grew more and more as they were adults. A lot of people say that they like uh, researching the things that they collect, so it's not just having the object, it's all of the knowledge that goes around the object, that comes with the object, the actions of reading more about it. Um, and then um, others, others like the community of other collectors. They like, um, it, it, particularly collectors of uh, art and antiquities, they enjoy being around other people who like these sort of things. They enjoy um, being associated with museums and um, sharing this with museums. So there's, there's a lot of things there. But ultimately, um, it is very personal why people start collecting. And the, the urge to collect can be so great that people who don't normally consider themselves criminals, who wouldn't normally do anything that was against the law, seem to sometimes make poor decisions, sometimes knowingly, sometimes sometimes in ways where they don't want to know, if you know what I mean. No, because that's what I was wondering. Are they aware then? Because some of these objects would then possibly be stolen. Would they, would they want to know that? Or, or is that something they put back in their mind, kind of? Yeah, so um, in some of uh, my research and my colleagues' research, uh, we find that within the antiquities market, particularly, um, many collectors and many dealers know which questions they should not ask. So they try not to know too much information because they, they may feel that something's a bit wrong, they don't want solid proof because then, of course, that might prevent them from, from being involved with selling an object or buying an object. Um, intellectually, most people who have participated in the antiquities market for some time, they do know the issues. They do know the risks. Um, however, they, they often have ways of either convincing themselves that it's all right, or um, having what we call plausible deniability, um, not asking the right questions. And so a collector would, in this case, maybe never ask where is the rest of the sculpture, where is the body? They um, would ignore the, ignore the body, basically. Yeah, Because yeah. Donna, I also know that in your current research, that you're connecting something that that's called techniques of neutralizations. So you will have to explain what that is. But you're connecting that from the criminal world to illicit trade in cultural objects, right? Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. So this is this is where the criminology comes in. Um, as as you said before, I'm an archaeologist. That's what all of my degrees are in. But for now, over a decade, I've I've been working in criminology departments, bringing criminology um, ideas into this world. So in the 1950s, two criminologists named, uh, named Sykes and Matza were studying teenage criminals, teenage youth offenders who were committing just little crimes. 
Um, and they found that these, these kids uh, knew what they were doing was wrong, but they didn't really consider themselves to be criminals. They used a number of different ways of dealing with the psychological uh, problems of committing crimes that um, allowed them to continue to think they were good people. So what do I mean by that? Um, basically, they, they dealt with the psychological trauma of committing crimes by having internal excuses for it. And these are called neutralization techniques. So techniques, because it's something that they do, and neutralization, so making a bad act neutral. And these fit into certain different categories. So in a way, every excuse that these kids gave for committing a crime fit kind of a pattern. So um, Sykes and Matza collected five of these neutralization techniques. Um, and I think that we see these in the um, antiquities world. So uh, thinking about these five neutralization techniques, uh, we can talk about, about them in relation to this uh, Buddha head and collecting Buddha heads. So the first neutralization technique is denial of responsibility, uh, basically saying it wasn't my fault. So if you're buying this Buddha head, you can buy this and say, well, I didn't steal it. I didn't knock it off its statue. It's not my fault. I'm just the end receiver of this chain. So that's number one. Denial of injury is the next neutralization technique. This is basically saying it didn't hurt anybody. So that would be saying, well, this Buddha head came from the illicit market, but this isn't a real crime. Nobody got murdered. Of course, you don't know that. Could have happened. Um, nobody got murdered. It's fine. Nobody was hurt. The, the next is denial of the victim. So this is basically saying the victim deserved this to have deserved um, the theft. So talking about the Buddha head again, um, that would be saying something like, well, sure, this is illegal, but China wasn't protecting it, so they didn't deserve to keep it. Um, next is condemnation of the condemners. Oh, wait, what does um, that mean? What does that mean? That means uh, basically saying uh, that that everybody is out to get me. That's that that's saying that the 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 people who are accusing you of uh, committing crimes are the real criminals. So uh, this might be uh, somebody buying this Buddha head and saying, "Well, all of these archaeologists and museum people steal objects too. Isn't archaeology just theft as well?" I'm doing the same thing as these archaeologists. Um, and then the final one, which is the one that I think is most interesting here, is appeal to higher loyalties. So in the case of a Buddha head like this, it would be saying, well, I know it's illegal. I know it's wrong, but I can preserve this. I can save it. Isn't saving and preserving the statue more important than the law? So those are your neutralization techniques. And through any one or a combination of those, you can see how somebody who is trying to justify um, committing a criminal act um, can make themselves feel better about it, can make themselves feel like, I'm not a criminal, I'm not a crook. Hence, you don't want to call them criminal collectors, right? Exactly. Well, I... I, I I, I don't want to call anybody a criminal until they have a conviction. <laughs> then I'll call them a criminal. Um, 
but it's it's more that it's just a lot more complicated. Um, it, there's a lot more shades of gray than just right or wrong. And that means our responses to this these kind of acts have to be a bit more complicated than uh, just just making something illegal and um, expecting people to act um, in a certain way. Because the neutralization techniques give them them a, a way to break the law without feeling like a criminal. So you already mentioned it, but let's let's move on to those responses. What are then possible responses to this? If someone works really hard not or, or justifying not being a criminal, how how do you respond to this? How do you put into action uh, responses? Well, I think there are a number of responses, some of which um, uh, can come from the museum. So I might pass that over to Maria. But I think it's very important um, for us to understand that this love of the past that collectors have is legitimate. It's something that we can, um, many of us can relate to. Uh, Maria and I both are archaeologists. Clearly, we're attracted and interested in the past too. So I think one of what, what we need to come up with are, are ways to get these people um, uh, interacting with the past in a positive way. Um, and that, that can be very difficult, especially if, if somebody very much wants to own an ancient thing. But I think it's our job uh, within the museum and cultural heritage word, world um, is to find meaningful alternatives ways that people can get what they want from the past without having to physically own it and have it in their home. And Maria, do you want to tell us then about how can museums be a part of this? Uh, well, um, museums collect too, of course. That is what we are famous about, our collections. And uh, I, when you look at, when you look through history at uh, old collections, uh, Sometimes it seemed personal for curators or directors uh, to build sort of the ultimate collection. They wanted to have the the best samples of, of a culture, perhaps. And they they could uh, do some illegal acts to get that last missing bit, unfortunately. So museums are not without fault when it comes to illicit trade, not at all. And still today, though, some major museums around the world that are charged with acquiring stolen or plundered goods. Um, it happens on a regular basis, actually. Um, so it's important for every museum to take a good look at their acquisition policy uh, for first and foremost. And uh, we have done that at our museums. Uh, we no longer acquire any objects, no matter the age, that doesn't have a solid, uh, known good uh, provenance. So. No more of these gray areas, definitely. What else can we do as, as a museum? Well, I think that we can uh, work with raising awareness and uh, well, teaching uh, the public about heritage and the, the richness of heritage. And also, I think it's very important for archaeologists to, uh, to teach the public what archaeology is and why it's so important that objects are are found, are left at their finding place, so we can find them in situ, as it's called, uh, where they were left at one point in, in history. I'm, I'm glad, Maria, that you brought up uh, archaeologists here, 
um, because one thing that I, I always like to uh, promote is um, there there are options of of going on archaeological holidays and volunteering at archaeological digs, um, which um, helps uh, archaeology quite a bit. You're going to get a little bit muddy. You're going to be digging things up. But it's one way to interact very, very closely with the past, to contribute to archaeology, to do it the right way, and to not get involved in any of this sticky, um, negative, illicit trade kind of thing. And you can find these these archaeology holidays or volunteering um, opportunities very close to home, um, or or there are options um, basically all over the world. Uh, I've I've worked with a group that does this in Belize, um, so you can help dig up the ancient Maya. Um, I'm sure there are some in Sweden. I used to live in Scotland. There were quite a few options in Scotland where you could go just for a weekend or or a couple weeks. And I think that's that's the kind of opportunity that I'd, I'd like to promote among people who who want to touch the ancient past, who want to physically be part of it and be very close to it, but don't want to be part of anything destructive. What, what other possibilities are there? Do you have any other kind of creative ideas? Yeah. Well, just thinking off the top of my head here, um, in the United States, I, I'm American, if you can't tell, in the United States, there are adoptive, uh, adopt-a-highway programs where um, people who have have a lot of money, um, uh, pay to keep uh, scenic roadways clean and in good maintenance for everybody else. What if there was an adopt an artifact program where people who have the kind of money that you need to buy an antiquity instead um, fund the 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 provenance research needed to understand the background of a particular object and perhaps fund some of the the maintenance of this object, the conservation and preservation of it. Um, Because provenance research takes a lot of time, it's very expensive. That way, somebody who wants their name in a museum and who wants to be very close to a a cultural object has a, a positive way of doing it rather than buying something off the market, a way that gets their name out there, lets them interact with the object, but ultimately doesn't result in more destruction. And might possibly benefit all of us, right? Yeah. Yeah. I think also there has been, might still be a project in Sweden where you could adopt a runestone and you could be in charge of taking care of it, uh, cleaning it from uh, moss and like, and uh, make sure you could read it. So that is an idea. I was reading yesterday, actually, by chance, that metal detect to ring, is that a word? Uh, it's becoming a, a huge thing in the UK. Uh, the private people are now starting to do that en masse. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? <laughs> oh, horrible. It's a, <laughs> it's a sensitive subject in the yeah. UK. Um, and it doesn't matter where you are in the UK because the law is different in Scotland. <laughs> um, but yeah, it, it seems to be something that uh, people are seeing as a a corona-positive uh, uh, hobby. Uh, unfortunately, it it is a, a bit of a complicated legal situation, and taking up that hobby without knowing 
the complicated legal situation can be potentially legally dangerous for those involved. Um, there are a number of long-standing metal detecting societies, some of them who work closely with archaeologists, um, and they do metal detecting legally in the UK. Um, so I, I would definitely not suggest just buying a metal detector online and going outside um, because you <laughs> you run the risk of, of quite accidentally getting arrested. And here in Sweden, it is illegal to to Definitely use a metal detector <laughs> unless you have a permit from the I think the National Heritage Board gives those licenses. But otherwise, it's a big no-no on metal detectors. There yes. we go. Uh, finally, though, I do want to ask you both: Is there something in particular, like a particular endangered heritage, that you think is extra crucial to protect right now? Yeah, actually. Um, the, the type of heritage that I've been really interested in is religious heritage, uh, sacred art that hangs in churches and temples around the world. This is a little different from items that come dug out of the ground from archaeological sites because we have the ability to document these things. Uh, uh, artifacts that come out of the ground from archaeological sites we don't know what they are. They've entered the illegal market after being looted without any record of their existence, which makes it very difficult to locate them, to, to get them returned. There's no provenance for these items. But um, items that are in churches and temples, there is a history to them. So these are items a lot like this Buddha head that we're talking about here. Um, but they're very, very popular on the market. Um, I work a lot in Latin America and in the high Andes in Bolivia and Peru. And for the past 15 years or so, there's been a number of thefts of, of sacred art from churches that go into the world market um, because of really uh, decorating trends that seem, seem to be using these things. And um, I think that in many cases, we, we don't talk a lot about these things. Um, because we're, we, we, um, a lot of our conversations have been about, about um, Syria and Iraq. Um, these, the looting in Syria and Iraq around conflict is important, but sometimes it makes us forget that this is going on in other locations and often closer to home. So within Sweden, um, uh, Viking items are always popular on the market, but I'd be, I'd be watching the churches. Sometimes they're not very well protected. Sometimes alarms are old and there aren't security guards. And in, in the case of churches, sometimes the doors are open because they're community spaces. And um, this, this can cause problems when these items are valuable. So I'd, I'd keep my eye on sacred art and, and particularly art in churches and temples. And what about you, Maria? Yeah. Yeah, sorry. I, I think it's good that you mentioned uh, that, Donna. And also, it's a good reminder that uh, illicit trade doesn't just affect archaeological objects. It happens uh, through historical objects as well. They might as well be protected in a, a country's uh, heritage laws. And uh, thefts from churches is a problem here in Sweden, especially from our uh, we lose uh, wooden sculptures, for example, because we have lots of medieval sculptures in our churches which have survived very well 
because of the climate. And they are popular in South Europe in the, in the Catholic market. <laughs> so most definitely, uh, it's not just archaeology. Uh, but I would like to say that uh, active looting, plundering and destruction is, is going on all over the world right now. And I think it's important for you who listen to understand that this isn't something that happens just far away. It happens around you, wherever you live. And whatever the reason, uh, once a heritage is gone, uh, a piece of history is lost. Would you say, like, are there some objects that are more valuable, more kind of popular on the market right now? Uh, absolutely. Uh, the interesting thing about the antiquities market is that it's part of the larger art market and it follows larger art market trends. So certain types of things become more popular or less popular, sometimes in relation to uh, big museum displays. So some research has shown that uh, Egyptian objects get more popular every time King Tut's treasures are traveling around the world. Some of our interviews with uh, dealers of antiquities have shown that when there are big um, blockbuster museum exhibitions about a particular culture, they try to uh, start selling those objects or, or objects from those cultures, they start presenting them to buyers a bit more because buyers are asking about them. So you, you see some connection to what museums are doing when it comes to popularity, but uh, a lot of what's popular on the market at any given time has to do with just wider societal trends. So, for example, Latin American uh, church objects fit in with sort of a, a 2000s idea of Day of the Dead, Mexican stuff that became very cool in uh, clothing and decoration and houses. And then the art market comes along and, and supplies that. Talking about the Buddha head, for example, um, there, there was a, a big rise in popularity of uh, ancient objects from China, from India, from, from that part of the world um, in the 1960s when Buddhism and Hinduism uh, got taken in by the counterculture movement and everybody wanted that in their home. So um, the, the trends tend to follow uh, what, what the greater society is interested in. Uh, when it comes to the art market right now, um, a couple of things that seem quite hot on the market for whatever reason are um, uh, objects from the steppes. So from Russia, Mongolia, these, these kind of... Uh, uh, nomadic people who uh, made beautiful arts, especially metalwork, um, a lot of it very well preserved in the ground. Um, we're seeing a lot of that on the market. What, what, why and is that, you think? I'm not sure. I think there's been a couple of uh, 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 interesting museum uh, exhibitions about it. But uh, I, I also think that just kind of the style of it, the the, the iconography uh, appeals right now. We also see um, uh, some, some tying of uh, ancient objects to the buying of modern art. So we see a, a lot of uh, uh, sales of antiquities 
um, trying to match the same artistic forms of, of say, Picasso and so on. The, the dealer's trying to draw these connections between the two. So if you're the kind of person buying a, an expensive Picasso, perhaps you want this ancient sculpture that looks a lot like Picasso. Thank you. Thank you so much, Maria. Thank you so much, Donna. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.